0: My name is Aggie, and this is Biohacking Bestie. The one stop shop for a modern queen where you can find biohacking courses, self growth courses, and where you can find the most incredible community of women so you can hit all of your biohacking goals and beyond. This podcast would never be possible if it wasn't for sponsors and today I want to give a massive shout out and share with you an, an incredible scientific breakthrough in the world of health aging and longevity. It's called C15. It's the first essential fatty acid to be discovered in 90 years and listen up. Studies have confirmed that it's three times better broader, and safer than omega-3s. So I'm sure you've been hearing, oh, omega-3s are good for you 100%, especially that we're bombarded with cereals everywhere we go. It's apparently 10 bits of our diet. So we really need to make sure that we get all of the good acid, fatty essential fatty acids into our body so fatty 15 is the world's first pure science-backed 315 supplement designed to support healthy aging and long-term wellness because three times healthy aging cells benefits of omega-3 or fish oil this is why i no longer take omega-3 i always take fatty 15 c15 works in multiple ways it reports age-related damage to cells protects them from future breakdown boost mitochondrial energy and activate pathways, a natural repair mechanism for healthier aging overall. This basically all leads to so many benefits that as we age, you know, we can improve our metabolism, liver and heart health, smoother functioning joints, deeper sleep, healthier hair, ha, now I have your attention, also skin and nails. It comes in like super sleek jar and refill capsules like in a box. So you basically refill your... Uh, you you have these like little pouches and you refill your beautiful glass jar every now and then uh, which i absolutely love because the pouches are made from recycled materials fatty 15 is on a mission to replenish your c15 levels and restore your long-term health you can get an additional 15 percent off on their 90 day subscription starter kit by going to fatty15.com forward slash aggie or just use Aggie at checkout AGGIE for additional 15% off your first order. I guarantee this is one of the best supplements I've been using. I don't take a lot of supplements every day, but this one's like, oh, I definitely want it. It's a massive anti aging biohack. So it's fatty15.com. Use the code Aggie for 15% off and thank me later. Guys, welcome, welcome, welcome to Biohacking Bestie. And today on a podcast, I have someone that I have been admiring for such a long time. And I feel like I want to amplify the mission of, because your mission is so important, Dr. Laura. Bryden, thank you so much for being the guest on the podcast. And thank you for everything that you do. And I think we have a very similar mission to help women fall in love with their cycle, their hormones, and celebrate them instead of feeling like it's a it's a curse. It's a
1: superpower. Yeah.
0: So, welcome.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Um, So, you know, the the typical, usual question: How does one start get on the journey of helping women celebrate their bodies? Because I know we often don't get. You know, it's not exactly what you get taught in school.
1: Right. Well, I think it's what you just said: our hormones are our superpower rather than being a liability. And my background is evolutionary biology, so I also come at it through the lens of just acknowledging that female is arguably, you know, the default normal version of physiology. I like to characterize male as the quirky variant. But we're female, so we're cyclic beings and yeah, that's a, that's a key part about how our body works. It's um I think it's better to just work with it and um stop fighting it. So in your journey, like
0: if we can just zoom out and kind of start your personal journey with your period and your relationship with it and how it has changed or is changing over the course of everything that you're doing and serving women.
1: That's it. Yeah, that's an interesting question. My periods throughout my life, I mean, my periods have stopped now. I'm into menopause. So that's a whole other part of the journey, which is also a a good part of the journey. My, My periods personally were not too bad. They were pretty straightforward. I never took hormonal birth control because I was a naturopathic doctor, basically. And even as a younger woman, I always just used condoms and never really occurred to me to go on hormonal birth control. But a lot of my knowledge about menstrual health and and knowledge about all the different ways menstruation can be difficult, of course, came from my patients from 25 years of working with women on the ground, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five, just trying to find solutions for period problems that solutions other than hormonal birth control. And fortunately, as you can imagine, the body responds really, really well, actually. So periods, my I set the bar quite high. I've, I would argue that menstruation should not be difficult or painful or distressing in any way there you know it's usually possible to achieve symptomless menstrual cycles so no significant premenstrual symptoms no significant pain no heavy bleeding they should just kind of come and go yeah. and um I think that's possible for a lot of women. And I think
0: this is really important. So if you're listening to this and, you know, my listeners are usually women and it's this idea and I love, I don't know if you know the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, the myth of normal and this idea that if something is common, doesn't mean it's normal. And we have normalized painful periods, PMSing, feel like we want to kill our partner before period (laughs) and eat a tub of ice cream and, you know, feeling all like, you know, like out of control like different personality. Mm -hmm. And I know from my journey, I definitely feel the difference on a month where I'm not really following my protocol of how to keep my hormones healthy. I was like, oh, wow, this sucks. Like, I can't imagine that women go through it every month. And there's so many things we can do, which I love that you say that. So maybe from the beginning, how has your work changed from 25 years ago to what is it right now? Because I have a feeling you might be getting busier and busier (laughs) in your practice.
1: Well, I could speak yeah well, I mean, i'm I can only have the time to see a few patients these days. I'm mostly writing. I've got a third book coming out, but I still love my work with patients. Um, I do still see people face to face consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand. But, oh, I guess I might comment on over the twenty five years kind of what's happened in women's health and the natural health space more generally because it, yeah, it has been yeah, way- I'm super
0: curious like how it's evolved, yeah. right And where we are,
1: yeah. so, 25 years ago when I start well I started practicing in 1997 I graduated as a naturopathic doctor that year and just dove straight into general practice in a small town in Canada so I was treating people of all shapes and sizes and both sexes and so not but a lot of them were women who were coming to me and they there wasn't a lot of at back at that time you know critiquing hormonal birth control was a lot more unusual. I think here we are in 2024. It's pretty common, actually, for a lot of people to be speaking out against the pill or raising some of the issues around that. Back then, that was a time of high dose hormone therapy for menopause and lots of surgeries. And just to give you an example, just to situate it. So with polycystic ovary syndrome, which I'm sure you've probably talked about maybe on your podcast or have listeners who are aware of that, back in 1997, 98, it was a brand new idea, like a completely new idea that it could be linked to blood sugar or insulin balance or anything like that. That had just come onto the radar. Now it's like diabetes of the ovaries. Right. I know. And also just things like there's a quote in my first book, Peer to Peer Manual, back in the nineties. You know, the some of the local doctors that were working in the town where I was and interacting with my patients, they had never heard of probiotics. That was like the weirdest thing for them. They're like, Good bacteria, you know, what a strange <laughs> So, you know, a lot of things obviously have changed wow. since then. I think it's kind of a if amusing is the right word, like It's gratifying, I guess, and good that like a lot of the things that back in 25 years ago only naturopathic doctors were talking about is now you know quite a common conversation across lots of different yeah people are working out professions and people doing different kinds of work yeah Yeah. and you were definitely like
0: at the forefront. That's why I was just curious to see as you had this you know backseat and I was like oh is this what's happening right now? I'm so happy that you were probably super niche. To now being like, okay, guys, I've been talking about it for twenty-five years, but thanks for finally listening. Yeah, right,
1: which is so beautiful. Oh, this is go ahead. Yeah, I don't. It's funny. Actually, I don't have many interviewers. I don't have many interviewers ask me about that side of things. But yeah, it's interesting that you're curious in the you know the history of it and what was happening. Because for me, it's like I, I, you
0: know, I chatted to my mom, and you know, when I think across my girlfriend, all of my girlfriends were in like mid thirties. 80% of them have hormonal issues, if not more. It's either PCOS or endometriosis or no period at all or hot flashes at night and super early perimenopause. And I'm thinking like, so I call mom. I'm like, mom. Like, was that, like, same when, you know, in the 80s when I was being born? And she's like, no, it was super, like, an, an anomaly to have someone who didn't miss their period, uh, you know, or, or fertility wasn't as common. But she said, like, oh, now everyone seems like everyone has some sort of level of hormonal issues, obviously, through it. Actually, you tell me, why is that?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. There is a, there's a, a trend to... Yeah, I would say my observation is there are more, it's more common to have period related problems now, but PCOS is definitely increasing quite dramatically. It seems to be amplifying every generation. There's reasons for that. We can talk about that. Endometriosis also and pain does seem to be more common. I think, you know, there's going to be different factors. I think this is tracking along with in general health, like metabolic problems like insulin resistance is becoming a lot more common than it was 25, 30 years ago. Also, there's a lot of changes with immune system and microbiome. And I think some of that is, you know, going to be from the food supply and antibiotic exposure, especially, you know, as infants and young child antibiotic exposure. I think that's creating a change. And that will show up in periods because one of the most important one of my key messages that is in Period Prayer Manual, my first book, menstrual health is not separate from general health. So, you know, I talk about in that book, fix your fix your health, and you'll fix your periods. So, there there is a strong connection. So, the fact that we're seeing this uptick in menstrual problems is, I would say, parallel to an uptick in health problems yeah. generally, like an uptick in IBS yeah. and an uptick in allergies and things like that so periods are going along and
0: period is your fifth vital sign so it's such a gift for us as women to know that the moment period is off it's like oh i am not healthy it's not like oh whatever and so like for me personally i always find it super interesting when i see fitness experts that you know share their diet and workout regimen oh and by the way i haven't had period in 10 years but this is how you should eat as well and i'm like I would not take right. advice from you. I'm sorry. But yeah. like, if you if you haven't had your period in 10 years, probably your diet isn't, a, you might look good, but your diet probably isn't super healthy. And that's a little bit scary that we, the the looks feels like as long as someone is skinny, we think they're healthy, but skinny doesn't equal healthy. And
1: oh, of right. And yeah. so there's
0: this whole yeah. idea. is like, that has been a very like, brand new idea for me back in the day to like, wow, like, show me your period and I'll tell you how healthy you are. Right. And it's like your whole menstrual cycle. So for all of my listeners, women, if you're listening to this, the chances are it's going to be really hard for you to find someone who will take your period seriously to the point that, uh, you know, we'll say, hey, PMS is not normal. I remember my best friend going through so many painful periods, going to a doctor. It's like, you know, period's meant to be painful for some women, only to realize right. she had endometriosis for years and years and years that was misdiagnosed. Yeah. So let's talk about PCOS, and endometriosis, If not to self-diagnose, but what can we recognize about our period that is a good indication something's off and then what we can do about it?
1: Yeah, we'll talk about them one at a time because yeah. they're quite different. Different, different. Conditions. I'll just and I'll respond to what you were saying about the period. I just again as menstrual health as an expression of general health. In period to period manual, I call our period our monthly report card. It's just a very handy little you know te- a check a check in with health and and especially now this many decades into practice when I do occasionally have a male patient, I just have this gap. I'm like, oh wait, of course I can't ask about periods, so I'm missing this. You know sort of diagnostic lens that is can be quite helpful for women. So yeah, the starting place periods, and I guess I'll just define what a period is. So I think this is maybe a good starting yeah. place. a menstrual cycle by period by period, we're not just talking about the bleed actually. the bleed is only just sort of one part of it, the inevitable result of the hormonal events that define a menstrual cycle. So a menstrual cycle is essentially by definition a cycle in which ovulation was the main event which of course means that the pill the withdrawal bleeds we get on oral contraceptive pills are not menstrual cycles that's yeah. a very important thing and that does seem to be a message that's finally getting through to everyone maybe even to doctors that you know you cannot regulate the menstrual cycle with the pill because they're not menstrual cycles the pill the pill just switches off ovarian function basically kind of puts the ovaries in a temporary menopausal state almost and so has you know can mask menstrual symptoms but it doesn't do anything to correct them.
0: Also like I think the biggest one the one that I feel the most passionate about is the fact that it switches off our ovulation altogether so we never really yeah. ovulate. So before we maybe even go that could you just explain the benefits of ovulation because I think this is really telling for people because you not only have no period or you know no bleed, um, yeah. you also have no ovulation on the pill.
1: Well, that's the main thing you don't have. Yeah, so the ovulation, like I said, ovulation is the main event of the menstrual cycle. Ovulation is important not just to make a baby, but for general health because ovulation is how we make hormones. So men make their testosterone daily. We make our estrogen and progesterone in a monthly pattern. And the only way we can do that is if we progress, you know, make a lot of estrogen on the progression, the way to ovulation, and then we actually ovulate and then we form a temporary gland in the ovary that makes progesterone. And that is the only way to get progesterone. There's no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control. Those are all progestins, Mm -hmm. which actually have quite different effects in lots of different tissues, including the brain and the breasts and cardiovascular Mm -hmm. system. So progesterone, our own progesterone that we make is beneficial. So is estrogen, of course, for brain health, for bone health, for immune system, (laughs) for heart and cardiovascular system, for mood, for breast health. Progesterone in particular probably reduces the risk of breast cancer over a lifetime. It's a bit of debate about that, but I'm in the camp that thinks it probably reduces the risk. Whereas, so progesterone probably reduces the risk of breast cancer, whereas progestins, just as a fine point of detail, all progestins probably slightly increase the risk of breast cancer, so that just illustrates the difference between real progest- hormones that we make with ovulation and um, the progestins that we take as hormonal birth control. So, in that sense, a lifetime—you know, over the three to four decades that we will have periods—that's a really important dose of hormones that we get every month, and/or in a huge amount when we're, if during pregnancy, because pregnancy also. You know, provides the body. It obviously builds a baby, but it also provides the body with that exposure to those beneficial hormones in quite high amounts. And all of that can build what's called metabolic reserve, which is means it's it's building bone mass, it's optimizing heart health and brain health, so that even once we reach menopause and those hormones reduce, we still have you know that good. Tissue quality or metabolic reserve to get us through.
0: Plus, I mean, ovulation also makes like there are studies that makes you just more radiant, more beautiful, more attractive, yeah. more attractive. So I feel there's so many benefits, and I have never been informed about the benefits of ovulation except for the one for to make babies or to be fertile. It was almost like. Yeah, Yeah, you don't, you know, on the pill, you just won't be fertile. But no one said, you know, ovulation is not just things that make you fertile, also strengthens your bones, supports your metabolism, insulin sensitivity, you're more attractive. Like none of this was ever mentioned to me, which is a bummer, right? Because it's like we women were put in this very misinformed environment, right? Where where the hasn't been communicated all the, um, you know, the fine print of what happens when you're not ovulating.
1: Think about an analogy with men. Imagine if we said to men, "You only need testic- testicular function and testosterone are only to make a baby. So if you're not ready for ba- making a baby, then we're just going to switch that all off. We'll switch off your testosterone and we'll replace it with this, you know, contraceptive, yeah. or you know, this drug version of testosterone that's not really testosterone. It's kind of more like estrogen in some ways. And you're going to obviously have lots of side effects from that and not have the benefits of your own testosterone. But that's what we do. Like that's essentially what we say to women. So we need our we need our own estrogen and progesterone the same way men need their testosterone. And to be clear, we make a little bit of testosterone as well, and men make a little bit of estrogen as well. But so that's it's
0: funny, but like from a biological point of view, it would be um, it would be safer for men actually to go through the reversible procedure of tying their testicles, right, versus a woman being on a thirty year hormonal birth control,
1: right. So actually, it's interesting you bring up vasectomy. So you're talking vasectomy, about vasectomy, yeah. which is um, now. So that's obviously a permanent.
0: You can reverse it. I know a few friends that just did it for five years or six years and they went back.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, and it's funny you'd mention this because on the radar, like soon, it's in, it's, I talk about it in period repair manual, but, and I keep saying, oh, it's coming soon. It's coming soon, but it's finally be, being clinically trialed in Australia, actually a version of what's called a occlusive method. So it's like, it is a, re- it is a reversible vasectomy. It's they don't, in the new method, they don't, Cut the vas deferens. They just put a, a gel in there oh. to prevent the sperm from entering the semen. So it is, it potentially could be a game changer in terms of options for avoiding pregnancy. But you're very right. Like, just to point out, men are fertile every day, whereas women are fertile. Technically we're only fertile one day per cycle, but it works out to about six days per cycle because sperm lives for five days. So that kind of adds to the the window. But yet it's women who have been expected to switch off their entire hormonal system to avoid one day of, you know, fertility per month. And to be clear, vasectomy or the reversible, the new reversible version of vasectomy does not affect Men's hormones. So it all it does is pre, you know prevent the sperm from entering the semen. So they are they still you know they it just like when you look at have the no benefits subjects.
0: and like women die yeah. actually die from birth control versus the worst thing yeah. that can happen with vasectomy you might be infertile, which is also a side effect of birth birth control like prolonged birth control. So it's like so funny that like we still it's so. Commonly, birth control is so common comparing
1: to vasectomy that like on a, I'm like just annoyed <laughs> that it has never. Been. Well, there are also ma- there are also male condoms. You know, condoms are. Yeah. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, when I was, I feel like when I was a teenager in the 80s, condoms were more common. I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of maybe to do do need to do a more formal survey of young people today, but certainly my young patients seem to have this idea that condoms don't work or that even worse that men don't want to wear them whenever they tell me their partners don't want to wear them i just feel like it's like too bad you know that's yeah. what that's what men that's, have to do if they rich, want to have sex that's literally what it is so the, the
0: girlfriends i'm speaking i'm in a long-term relationship so it's not yeah for me but a lot of times it's just like guys so, oh i just really don't like it i'm like yeah no shit but it's also like, you want to see suck it up <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like I just that just feels yeah Yeah. I mean so that's yeah I feel like we're on the same page and there's a part of me that I just like I want to like bring that voice to the table that like hey if you just had two kids with your wife and you both in your 30s and you're not planning on having more kids she should not go on birth control if you you know like time for vasectomy or some sort of procedure that can like support your woman right?
1: I'll just say one more thing about condoms too. I'm such a fan of condoms and I just, for what it's worth, because everyone's like, oh, they, they break, they fail. I mean, they, if they're used properly, if you get, if you get a condom that fits, because penises come in different sizes, importantly, so get the right size and it's less likely to break or fall off or anything like that. But in the unlikely event of a condom, there is, well, depending on where you are in the world, obviously, but you know, I would argue for easy access to the morning after pill or plan B or whatever Mm -hmm. it's called in different parts of the world because just to point out that method plan B is really just a big dose of a of a contraceptive pill it pre- it works by preventing ovulation so it works in the same way as the pill but you only take it maybe never or maybe you know once, once every yeah. 3 years and it's quite a different thing than taking the same drug daily so that combo of condoms plus access to morning after pill I feel like is a very you know powerful kind of reassuring way to avoid pregnancy for anyone who's listening to this and just feels like they need something super reliable I mean um there's also the male method. I'll just launch into like a little bit of other yeah, methods of avoiding up. pregnancy. Yeah.
0: Because by the way, so yeah. in long-term relationship doesn't mean that you have to use a condom every single time. Just use it around your ovulation until you really, really nail it. I have o ring, so I know exactly where my ovulation is. For me, it's a, a, a question of like three days now just to be safe because I like I
1: already know. Well, that's... So what you just described there, fertility awareness-based methods are... A, a possibility for avoiding pregnancy. They, they, it really can work. You do need to either be using, well, do you mind saying what you combine your aura ring with? Like, are you, what app are you using? Because I, I mean, we can just talk about, there's a few different approved algorithms that are approved for avoiding pregnancy.
0: Originally, I used Natural yeah. Cycles and then we actually, my researchers yeah. have been actually using, we're working on the app ourselves as well that would be able to oh. pick up not only that, but the thing that we're working on the most is actually will link with a male app. So the guy will get a notification of what's going on in the female body and how to support her during this time. Because I feel like men again I'm not, i know i sound like a man, man, man hater but i'm not but i just feel like if men took like a second to educate themselves about their partner's cycle for a little bit they would come with so much more understanding grace and they would be able how to support it but it feels like in my past relationships it was like oh it's her period it doesn't you know it, it affects me only because she's um, right. fertile instead of like what's ovulation Like, how does it, you know, like, how does it feel in your body? Like, what's happening? What is estrogen? Like, wouldn't that be beautiful if men were, like, slightly a little bit more aware?
1: Well, that's actually, and some research has borne that out. So couples who are using fertility awareness-based methods for either avoiding pregnancy or achieving pregnancy or even, as you're kind of describing, just for general health. It does seem to be quite beneficial for the relationship in general. of course, it's going to depend on the guy, I guess, and the nature of the relationship. But overall, yes, I mean, I think that c- that can be quite a good thing just to have that information about, yeah, what, sort of what's happening at different... Because we are cyclic beings. I mean, I said at the beginning that we shouldn't really have distressing or strong symptoms with the different phases of our menstrual cycle, but we can feel differently at the different times. And that's, I think, something we can embrace. I love and, it, actually. Um,
0: It makes me feel like I don't have to always go, go, go. And there's a time for me to just like slow down and just be where the best ideas come to life, which is something I had to learn and embrace because I was, you know, we live in this brainwash where you have to produce constantly. I have to be productive. And when you feel like, oh, I don't really want to go out, it makes you feel like maybe there's something wrong with you.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So Assuming that we, we should be the same every day rather than rec- just recognizing that it's during the luteal phase or this you know the two weeks leading up to the period, it is natural to feel a little bit more yeah. introverted and I, that's not a bad thing because I'm a strong introvert, so I think introversion is not necessarily it's a bad thing bad. and is natural another example is it's natural to feel hungrier in the second half of the cycle, it's 100% normal. So we don't have to, you know, fight that or feel guilty. I think the the solution to that natural increase in hunger is actually just to honor it with lots of preferably kind of high protein, healthy, you know, satisfying, f- like filling foods, but and therefore shelter from, you know, sugar and junk food during that time. I think by filling up on the other food, women can just naturally... Not require junk food. This this whole um, knowing if and when you ovulate and you know how that all feels. That's another word that gets used for that is called body literacy, which I really I do love that. love that term. And just to give you, because I know you're interested in the history of things, so I'll just name drop here. There's a um, she's a friend of mine actually from the same part of the world, Calgary, Canada. Um, Laura Wershler coined the term body literacy back in like the. 80s so she was had a her group had a it was monthly or weekly maybe a monthly like paper newsletter about body about body literacy and fertility awareness back then like so yeah. people would have got that in their post office box <laughs> and like a you know a little kind of like a little And all talking about, you know, alternatives to hormonal birth control and tracking your cycle and charting. And so, you know, that's a generation, full generation ago, but I just love that. And I've seen some of her old newsletters from that time. It's just really fun to think about. Yeah, the history of some of this.
0: Hey there beautiful beings, sorry for a quick interruption, but you all know that I'm super passionate about discovering natural ways to boost my health, right? So guess what? I've stumbled upon something absolutely amazing and I just can't wait to share it with you. It's called Armour Colostrum and let me tell you, it has been a game changer for me. It's been something that i take every day i have it with me right now in bali and i have seen incredible benefits and this is coming from someone who has been trying to heal her gut her entire life and i feel an amazing difference and it tastes amazing so here's the scope if you want to enhance your gut or step up your fitness game or add some extra glow to your skin and hair then definitely armor colostrum should enter the picture in your life and the changes i have noticed are incredible Armour Colostrum isn't just any health product, it's, you know, powerhouse of over of over 400 living bioactive nutrients. We're talking about complete transformation from the inside out, strengthening the immunity, fueling metabolism, boosting gut health, and so much more. And the best part, it's all natural, sustainably sourced from gas-fed cows right here in the US, plus their cold-chain biopotent Technology ensures that every nutrient is preserved in its most potent form. And for those of you who, like me, care deeply about sustainability, Armra has got us covered. They only use surplus colostrum after the calves are fully fed, so nothing goes to waste. Incorporating Armoura into my daily routine, like I said, I've noticed some pretty massive changes. My skin is more radiant, my energy levels are pretty much through the roof, and my fitness recovery is even faster than ever. And that's all thanks to colostrum. So if you're excited, as I am, to try it out, I've got a special treat for you. Head over to tryarmra.com forward slash aggie and use the code aggie to get 15% of your first order trust me your body will thank you so that's tryarmra t-r-y-a-r-m-r-i dot com slash aggie I can't wait for you to join me on this journey to a healthier happier you thanks for listening All right, so let's go back to PCOS, because I think this is super important for everyone okay. listening. So how yeah. do I know that there's a chance that I'm exper- you know, I might have PCOS that's undiagnosed?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, because PCOS is it is often misdiagnosed. So it's both overdiagnosed, we can talk about that, and it is underdiagnosed to some extent. So by definition, PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome is excess androgens. So, and a a too high level of testosterone or other male type hormones in a female body. And that is essentially what the condition is. It's, It's that situation of high male hormones when other explanations for that have been ruled out because there's other reasons for high male hormones. So those need to be excluded as part of the diagnostic process. And It can either be diagnosed based on measurably high levels of testosterone on blood tests or importantly, just as symptoms. So the symptoms would be strong jawline acne, facial hair, potentially hair loss, and the classic weight gain around the middle, which is very strongly tied with testosterone. And usually it'll also go along with a a suppressed ovulation. So ovulation that's not happening regularly or at all. Now, the confusing thing is, and as I've talked about in my work, is there's different types of PCOS. All actually sorts of random different things get lumped under the same diagnostic umbrella as PCOS. So you can actually have women who have regular cycles but still have high androgens, potentially from the adrenal glands. That's actually... It's still classically called PCOS, but it's sort of a slightly different situation and requires different treatments, which is why I've always been so adamant with my own patients and in my own writing to try to identify what I call the type or the functional type of PCOS. But where the overdiagnosis problem comes in is that traditionally, when the condition was described, it was observed that on ultrasound or even before ultrasound, actually just, you know, on surgery or other methods of imaging the ovaries, they could see that the ovaries look different in that there wasn't a, what's called a dominant follicle. So normally as the ovaries are progressing to ovulation every month, one of the egg, follicles or eggs will actually get quite big, like 2 centimeters, and will suppress all the other eggs that's from growing that cycle. So you'll have like you know, depending on the age of the woman, you know, you would classically have, you know, sp- depending on the magnification of the ultrasound, like six or, six or seven smaller follicles whose growth was arrested and then the one big dominant one. And that's kind of a, what an ovulate, ovulatory or normal menstrual cycle should look like. So obviously if ovulation is not happening, then you're not gonna have that appearance and you can have a lot more smaller eggs or follicles that d- weren't suppressed. They were just kind mm. of just growing to a small size. That's the so-called polycystic appearance. Now, to be clear, they're not cysts. Exactly. Like they're not like you can have a large ovarian cyst, and there's different kinds of that structure, kinds of ovarian cysts, which is an abnormal structure in the ovary, which is not what we're talking about with polycystic ovary. A lot of people are talking about changing the name because having the name cyst in the ovary has led to so much confusion. <laughs> so, as in a nutshell, I would say that although ultrasound is helpful for diagnosing certain things, including ovarian cysts, it is not at all helpful for diagnosing. PCOS, the hormonal condition of PCOS. And one of the main reasons is that essentially anyone can have polycystic ovaries at any time. They know that, I forget what the stat is, at least one in four, if you were just to, if you had a room full of women who are cycling normally and no symptoms and no PCOS, and you just did an ultrasound, about at least one in four of them would have polycystic ovaries. (laughs) So it's picking up just you know anyone really. And especially when it becomes more serious as if Someone, as you mentioned earlier, has lost their period to undereating, which is a common situation. She could have polycystic ovaries, but she doesn't have PCOS. She has hypothalamic amenorrhea or relative energy deficiency in sport would be the name given to that situation of irregular periods or no periods from underfueling. Likewise, someone could have endometriosis, you know, be, have pain as their main symptom, and just happen coincidentally to also have polycystic ovaries, and then been. And then, then so it's a lot of women being told they have PCOS based on this ultrasound finding, is what I'm trying to mm-hmm. say, and it's leading to a lot of confusion.
0: And obviously, the treatment will be very different.
1: Yeah. Right. So that's like. Yeah. A takeaway would be if you've been diagnosed with PCOS based on an ultrasound, I would question everything. Basically, just kind of go back to the drawing board and think. The main question is, do you have androgen symptoms? Because that's what the condition is. Which is basically primarily hair
0: loss, acne around your jawline, and weight gain your hair hip and facial hair.
1: Yeah, and facial hair. Yeah, facial hair and abnormal body hair, and there's even that is somewhat relative. Like I'll just put it, you know, frame it. A little bit of hair on the upper lip is not necessarily PCOS either. It's sort of because genetically some of us were more hairier than yeah. others, so there is some variability in that. And conversely, some women can have truly have PCOS and actually quite high androgens, but not be showing a lot of androgen symptoms. So this is where it does get into a little bit. The that's diagnosis, art, right?
0: That's the art of being a doctor. Like I think it's, you yeah. know,
1: that's why yeah. you
0: go to a doctor and you don't treat yourself yourself, <laughs> you know. But
1: that's why because you try to get a
0: diagnosis. Yeah, because it's yeah. like it's really important yeah. to because it's an art to navigate all of that. So obviously, just for someone to understand, like, oh shit, this is not normal. I perhaps should go see a doctor, and like that is also something that we can treat and cure. And what would be yeah. the next step for that?
1: Well. I mean, officially, PCOS cannot be cured, but it can certainly be improved. And uh, in my in my experience, depending on the, the exact nature of you know the severity of the symptoms and what's been going on, it can be reversed to the extent that it's not really a thing. And also, a lot of women can we know this from the science? A lot of women can outgrow PCOS, so there's that as well. And then the other temporary, really temporary PCOS would be what I characterize as post-pill PCOS, which is anyone who's been on a certain types of birth control, particularly Yasmin or any of the ones that really suppress androgens, when they come off, they can get a surge in androgens, like a post-pill acne and periods take a while to come back. And that can be diagnosed as PCOS, but it's the kind of thing that after a couple of years will often just go away.
0: What would you do in that situation where you're getting off the pill and you get an extra acne and you know this, okay, this is not PCOS, How? what do I do to get rid of that?
1: Yeah. And I talk about this in my, my books, and also I have a podcast episode called um, I mean "Like How to Treat Post Pill Acne and Weight Gain." Yeah, it's kind of it's probably about kind of planning for it. So knowing that's coming, especially if it's happened before, and starting some treatments like zinc and maybe changing the diet before coming off the pill, and just getting everything in place, and then also knowing that it'll be temporary can really help as well. So very often with the, tr- the some of the treatments um, that I talk about in my book, um, the post pill acne will not be as bad as it has been the last time someone tried to come off the pill. And of course, because as women, we always blame ourselves. I've had so many patients who get this horrible post Yasmin, usually skin breakouts, and they're like, oh my, I must be broken. Like I must be really messed up. And it's like, no, that's actually just a side effect of you know the drug you are on and now your body trying to adjust to not being on it it's like a, it's a withdrawal situation so a lot of women if they at least know that have to then feel they have a bit more control and that they know there's going to be an ending to that that's beautiful
0: what would you say is the difference between a healing pcOS and reversing it to a point of it's no longer there because you were very careful with your words
1: <laughs> I know well I mean they're pretty similar it's just that you know how people are, like they don't like no one likes people that sort of claiming there's a pcos cure so i guess just the word cure is i don't think it's necessary you know to to and certainly i would never say that's going to be guaranteed for everyone yeah. but yes for many people it can be reversed to the point that you don't qualify for the diagnosis anymore and that um that's pretty close to. Yeah. No, I know it's it a completely. I, yeah. I mean,
0: I believe, I mean, th- th- we can get into like more philosophical part of it because I do believe that yeah. you can reverse almost anything in your body, right? Like, it's, I, I'm a big believer that otherwise it makes me feel like that we are completely out of control, but there are always instances
1: of different conditions being healed. We can reverse out of a lot of symptom pictures for sure. I mean, some things. I don't want to downplay it. I mean, some people are born or even some born with, or to some extent, you know, have something set up quite early that is very challenging. I mean, we could talk a bit about where endometriosis might be in that category. It's... Because um, it's genetics, right? Well, yeah. So endometriosis is, it's also a very enigmatic condition. It um, has a strong genetic component. I think primarily because it has a very strong immune system component and so different People obviously genetically have different immune systems, so endometriosis does seem to run in families quite strongly, and it's also very much linked with the gut microbiome and intestinal permeability yes. and issues like that. And there's also some diagnosis issues around endometriosis as well. So what I it, it is worth we'll spend a few minutes talking about endometriosis. I would also refer people to I have a podcast called um, "Endometriosis is a Disease of Immune Dysfunction," where I kind of talk through some of the mechanisms a bit more, and it. One of the reasons it's worth talking about endometriosis is because we were saying earlier that, you know, the period is our monthly report card. And, you know, usually the goalpost is, abs- you know, no pain or no symptoms or just perfect. And that's, and then I know there'll be people listening who have endometriosis who just are quite challenged by that kind of statement because they maybe already do have quite a healthy lifestyle, but still have a lot of pain. So there is something quite you know, physical going on with endometriosis, those lesions can become quite inflamed and aggressive. In some cases, there's a place, an argument for surgically removing them. There's the opinions on that vary quite a lot. I will i am I'm I'm supportive of surgery sometimes for the condition. Certainly a lot of my patients have had it, the surgical removal, but I'll just point out it's also the lesions can go away on their own. They can. The immune system can clean them up to some extent or to a complete extent. So there is there's always, yeah, there's a way to certainly reduce the inflammation, reduce the pain. And if you can get close to pain-free, then again, that's another example of, you know, reversing out of the symptom picture to the point where it doesn't really matter if you still qualify for that diagnosis. Yeah,
0: And so for those who are listening, feeling like, oh, I don't even know what that would even mean or feel or look, yeah. what are some of the symptoms of endometriosis?
1: Yeah, well, the main symptom is pain. So right. So the painful endometriosis period. is a condition where there's yeah, not just so painful period and pain between periods. Pain with sex. Pain with sex is a really classic one, although that can be caused by other things, obviously. So like once again, the doctor has to try to diagnose it. With endometriosis, up until pretty recently, the only method of definitive diagnosis was with is with, was with surgery, which again is a very challenging thing to, you know, consider. That's changing a bit now. There's a few non-invasive testing methods that are on the horizon. They have not come to clinical practice yet. There's also kind of a, um, a growing awareness that certain types of ultrasound imaging can pick up certain types of endometriosis. And I'm careful to say it that way because, again, people can get kind of you know, concerned about the language around this. Just to be clear, the um, it ha- just having had a, an ultrasound that sh- is normal cannot rule out endometriosis, so that's important to say, but sometimes the more aggressive what's called the the deeper infiltrating lesions can be picked can be seen on the right with the right kind of ultrasound imaging. so that's another approach to diagnosis so and just to clarify if, for anyone who doesn't know, it's um a condition where lesions form throughout the pelvis, usually on the outside of the uterus or the outside of the ovaries or kind of in other parts of the pelvis cavity that are quite similar to the endometrial lining, not exactly the same though, which is quite important. That's different than normal uterine lining. And it's the important thing is about it that it, they, the lesions can become quite inflamed and full of a nerve supply. And so pain is the main symptom. Other simpt- The other symptom of endometriosis that most people are concerned about is it can cause infertility for sure. Not always. Some Lots of women with endometriosis just become pregnant and seemingly with no problem. Um, but certainly it, the amount of the inflammation associated with the condition seems to be impaired fertility in a lot of women as well. And importantly, you can actually have impaired fertility from endometriosis even without pain. And that's... Um, that does start to make it quite tricky. That's yeah. kind of like the subclinical picture of endometriosis. So, what is a, an endo belly? That's bloating. And it's interesting because, you know, in, term, in terms of, sort of like abdominal or distension, it's quite common with the condition. And I think at least some of that bloating, at least through my lens, is coming from the digestive bloating associated. So, there's endometriosis and irrit- irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease are quite closely. Related. So you mentioned
0: the connection between the gut, right? And so it yeah. could be also one of the symptoms yeah. on top of pain during or pain, super painful periods, and then obviously like getting super bloated.
1: Yeah, digestive symptoms are are one of the symptoms, <laughs> arguably. I mean, the question is how much of it, to what degree are the digestive symptoms caused by the endometriosis? And to what degree is it the other yeah. direction with the gut dysbiosis and intestinal permeability? driving or arguably causing endometriosis. What do you think? I mean, th- that's, that's
0: it's the question. second one.
1: So that's what my, that's what my video is about. You can put that in on my YouTube, uh, my podcast, YouTube episode called Endometriosis is a Disease, a, d- a Disease of Immune Dysfunction. I talk about intestinal permeability in that and some of the research around that suggesting, for example, that it sounds bizarre, but that <laughs> bacteria and bacterial fragments from the intestine can enter the pelvis and create a lot of inflammation associated with these lesions. It's, it's a bacterial toxin called LPS or lipopolysaccharide that does seem to be quite involved in endometriosis. So the good thing is that by treating the gut, specifically by treating something called SIBO, I don't know if that's yeah. something that's ever come up on your podcast before.
0: Well, I've, I've dealt with it for a few years, so I've been like quite open about my journey right. as well.
1: Okay, right. So by treating irritable bowel syndrome or SIBO or whatever, you know, whatever the diagnosis is, that can actually go a long way to improving endometriosis symptoms. Dr. Gundry is actually that. Yeah. Endometriosis is not, it's not a hormonal condition, which is quite important. It's affected by hormones for sure. It's strongly affected. The lesions are strongly affected by estrogen, but they're not caused by estrogen. Oh, beautiful.
0: Dr. Lara, so now that, you know, we kind of know, like, okay, we we already know what's common, what's not normal, where to look, how to find a doctor, what happens, you know, I'm probably very aware of that, that women get into peri- and menopause much sooner than back in the day right like even like apparently now that some women get into perimenopause in their early 30s and the, the doctors i have been speaking to that the the line is moving closer and closer and is there anything we can do to delay it if, if you will
1: right well interesting okay so my second book hormone Paramanual, is all about perimenopause I have not been aware, although I'm open to what research might be out there, to suggest that the age is getting younger. I don't know that that's true. I mean, it it might be. There's quite a bit of variation. I'll just say the normal Mm -hmm. age for the period stopping, like the actual final period stopping, which is menopause, is anywhere between 45 and 55 is the normal age for that. Perimenopause, what you're talking about, is the kind of lead up to the final period. And that can be up to 10 years before so it was oh it's technically is normal and I would say has always been normal for perimenopausal symptoms to start by a woman's mid to late 30s although some women it'll be much later and I think what's changed now is awareness actually I oh. think people just didn't used to think about that in their 40s as to what kind of what that meant there is there in the last yeah 4 or 5 years specifically there's been a huge surge in kind of awareness raising around perimenopause well, to be fair, I mean even now menopause like menopause period stopping before age forty five is abnormal. That's early menopause. I I don't know if the frequency of that is increasing. It's has been um, depending on sort of the age. It's it's only the frequency of that is only about one in a hundred women. So most women will be at least their period stopping at least you know forty five or later. Is there anything we can do to delay it? Essentially, no. I mean. Just a little bit of degree. I mean, all we know from the research is, for example, smoking can bring it a couple years earlier. Really poor health can affect it earlier, but amongst healthy people, there is still a ten-year range. Mm-hmm. So, for what it's worth, and I always just do like to make these cases. I had a number of you know patients and friends who were super healthy, super fit, you know, forty-seven-year-olds who entered. Like lost, you know, their period ended at that time and it was nothing they had done wrong. Or so I think the women who keep cycling into their 50s and mid 50s, that's kind of quite a late menopause, that's genetic to 95% of that is genetic, I would say. So, in answer to your question, there's not really anything we can do. Naturally, to delay the timing of menopause, there's a lot we can do to feel better during the transition process and stay healthy after the transition, and that's what Hormone Repair Manual is about. So there's and there's also quite a bit of variability. Like some women, I think in large part because of their general health, don't notice any symptoms with the transition. It's a natural life phase, to be clear. You know, perimenopause, menopause is not a disease. It's not a health condition. It's um, not a deficiency. We evolved to do it and that's i build a case for that in hormone repair manual this there have i mean people used to on average die a lot younger just because they were dying in childhood and dying in childbirth and dying you know of all sorts all the many many hazards that existed in previous times but for the those people who were lucky enough to s- survive all those hazards people have always lived into their 70s and 80s a few individuals so it's normal for women to spend you know the last 30 years of their life without periods Yeah. And arguably beneficial. I mean, beneficial for the species is kind of something called the grandmother theory of menopause. It suggests that it's quite interesting, actually, that a longer human lifespan for both sexes may have evolved or been selected for because post-reproductive women, older women specifically, are so useful to the family group that they're, you know, having those long-lived genes in women means that all the descendants, everyone gets to survive better because the grandmothers are um, gathering all the food. Yeah, we looking know after that. everyone that's and true. making sure
0: we know the best. <laughs> yeah, what yeah. would you do? What would, if someone's experiencing the first symptoms of perimenopause? Just a couple of things that we can do to make ourselves feel a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I'll give you the top three. Basically, I mean, I have a whole book about yes, this hormone yes. perimenopause, but the top three would be take magnesium and quit alcohol or. Seriously, reduce it back. I mean, for some women, stopping alcohol is all they need to do. Like they'll be like, "Oh, my, you know, hot flashes, my night sweats, my irritability, my breast pain—it's all gone now." That can happen. And the third thing would be to move the body because it's just perimenopause is the time, as I characterize it in 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 Hormone Repair Manual, the brain is recalibrating or rewiring, just as it does at other. Times of change. So, perimenopause is arguably second puberty. During first puberty, you know, the brain is rewiring. It does, it rewires again during pregnancy, during postpartum, during perimenopause. And the brain loves the body to move. So, I just encourage women, whatever it is, the kind of movement that lights you up, whatever that is, like for me, it's walking and yoga, but for other people, it's, you know, lifting heavy things or swimming or, you know, uh, rock climbing yeah, yeah. or dragon boating or just what, like whatever they love to do. And getting outside can be really helpful, too, because the circadian rhythm is also recalibrating during perimenopause. And so just getting that outdoor light, especially in the morning, can really help stabilize. And for some women, just those simple things can I mean it's all fine. Obviously, in Hormone or Perimenopause, then I talk about strategies for tougher situations and tougher cases. And there can be a place for hormone therapy. We'll have to maybe talk about that on a future podcast when I've sort of too much time to go into that now, but that's an option. Yeah. And so just to
0: wrap things up, menopause. So what would you say is... Yeah. Um, as you, because you th- shared earlier that this is the stage of the life yeah. that you're in, what is the most delicious thing about your menopause mm-hmm. right now? Because we always talk about all the things that we want to do to avoid it, and it's like this scary thing. But like, what's the most beautiful thing about menopause?
1: There really is. It's it's not fictional. I can tell you, it's real. This sense of just. Caring a lot, a lot less what people think. There's this, like, it, the tweet that I saw a couple of weeks ago. She's like, you know, let's have a little more menopause in the world. It's just kind of, <laughs> you know, um, take no prisoners. Just you know, the phrase that often gets used is it's a um, <laughs> profanity. Maybe I won't say, but like giving fewer like, f words about like, yeah. It's just like you really. It's quite. Real. And I remember my older patients telling me about it and then you don't really understand till you uh, Actually, get there, you it. get here that yes. Yeah, till you live it. It's just like oh, wow, why was I so I don't know if it's I don't know if it is all the estrogen or what it is about being a young woman being so, you know, people pleasing and just needing to kinda of,
0: I think that's the very particular. yeah and like it has to be a certain way and then everyone has to be a certain way, otherwise we're unhappy or stressed or I saw this meme that said, yes. uh, no worries either way, which means for a woman, I'm worried both ways and a secret third way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's oh, yeah. not what's happening when you're on menopause. Oh, I love that. That's really nice. Cause mm-hmm. I think it's just like this again. It's like just like you said, it's not a disease. It's something that is coming anyways. And I think as we understand it
1: and we see the benefits of it, there's nothing to be scared of. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's nothing to be frightened of. And the other thing to say is whatever symptoms and they're usually neurological symptoms that someone might encounter during the transition, during perimenopause, they need to know that those are temporary. That most of the research suggests that you come out the other side and, you know, mood is at least as good as it was when you were younger and Possibly better. I have this quote that I I think it's in my book, and I've put it in a few presentations from the University of Melbourne, where they decided they surveyed all these women, and they found that the at least seventy percent of women in their late fifties, sixties, report feeling pretty quote fantastic. <laughs> so you know there is this kind of in the Japanese term is I forget the exact word, but it's like second you know second spring or second life or like the, there is a resurgence of energy that can happen um, after the turbulent time of fairy menopause. That's so beautiful. Dr. Lara,
0: (laughs) where can people find you? Let's talk about that. Yeah. uh, What are you working on and, you know, what's exciting What's coming up?
1: Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. So, I'm easy to find all my social media and my is at Laura at Braddon and my blog is at uh, com. I've got two books so far period repair manual for women of any age and hormone repair manual for women over 40. And my third book, which is coming at the end of May, is on metabolic health. I haven't announced the title yet, but it's yeah, it's coming soon. So it's all about metabolic health as in um, insulin sensitivity and metabolic flexibility for women of any age and the importance of that. And um, yeah, some of the strategies for achieving that or regaining that.
0: Thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for your time. Thank you for being the guest means the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. Make sure you follow Dr. Lara. So much beautiful knowledge out there and so many incredible videos. We'll make sure you link all of them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll you